Welcome to Ad Exchanger Talks, the podcast devoted to examining the issues and trends in advertising and marketing technology that matter most to you. This is Allison Schiff. You're tuned to Ad Exchanger Talks, just to use a little radio lingo. And my guest this week is Nandini Jami, co-founder of Check My Ads, a nonprofit and the ad tech industry's first watchdog. And on Nandini's watch, it's a take no prisoners approach. Check My Ads advises Fortune 500 brands and helps them understand where their ads are running as the antidote to ad-funded disinformation. Armed with ads.txt files and sellers.json files, a sense of purpose and no fear, Nanzani does something that most other people don't. When she sees bad behavior and recalcitrance to correct it, she names names. Unwanted attention is a great motivator. No ad tech CEO wants to be the subject of a Check My Ads investigation exposing their involvement in funneling ad dollars towards hate and disinformation outlets. We'll talk about one recent and ongoing investigation into Publier, an ad network with some weird skeletons in its closet. But before we get started, please allow me to do a quick promo spiel for Programmatic I.O. taking place in New York City, September 26th and 27th. Join us at our new location, the New York Hilton Midtown, for the latest on CTV, commerce media, privacy, and identity with Elf Beauty's Chief Digital Officer, Chris Kane of Jounce Media, Kirk McDonald, CEO of Group M North America, Mondelez, Albertsons, the FTC, Verizon, Hearst, Time, the Privacy Sandbox, Roblox, Activision, Blizzard, Publicis, Digitas, and lots more. Register today before tickets sell out. Use code POD10, that's P-O-D-10, to save 10% off your pass. And thanks for listening. For more information and to register, please visit programmatic.io and we'll see you there. Nandini, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Allison. So good to be here. So um, I'm going to go into this weird little spiel, but it'll it'll make sense in a second. Do you know the Irish actress uh, Saoirse Ronan? Yes. So I have seen multiple interviews with her on late night talk shows and like other interview clips. And the first question she has asked nearly without fail is how do you pronounce your name? It's an Irish name. It's spelled S-A-O-I-R-S-E. It's Gaelic. I think it means freedom. It's pronounced nothing like it's spelled. And I really feel for her because she's constantly being asked how to pronounce her name and also having it butchered as like Sasha. And apparently someone called her Seahorse once in an interview, which is (laughs) bizarre. Um, So I, I feel like something similar happens to you, although maybe not on late night talk shows, because I may a culpa. I, I, it was Nandini Jami for me for the longest time, and I didn't know. Um, I think a lot of people know your name, and if they're an ad tech and they don't, they really, really should. But I don't think they necessarily know how to pronounce it correctly. So, for the record, for our listeners, Nandini Jami. It's Nandini. Very, Nandini. It's close. <laughs> that was so close. And thank you. And I don't mind at all. It's not a common name, so I. It is. As long as you're thinking about me. <laughs> there you go. It's 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 pronounced Nandini. That's the uh, the OG Indian uh, way of saying it. But um, 
As many of you know, I go by Nan Doodles on the internet, so I respond to that as well. Do you answer to Seahorse? Is my question. I don't answer to Seahorse. I have I have my limits. <laughs> so I just listened to the Architecture podcast from early July, where you were a guest, and Ari Paparo started out by asking you whether people should be scared of you. Um, Because ad tech CEOs, I think, do live in fear of getting publicly called out for helping support the spread of disinformation and monetizing toxic content, often, you know, dangerous content. And it, it reminded me of an IAB public policy event that I went to in D.C. in early April. There was this fireside chat between Jules Polonetsky, the CEO of the Future of Privacy Forum, who was actually just a guest on this podcast. And he was talking to FTC Commissioner Rebecca Slaughter. And the first thing that Commissioner Slaughter did was to address the audience, which was all lawyers and ad tech people, and joke that she's not as quote unquote scary or crazy as you may assume um, based on you know her stances. And I just think it's really interesting that there's this perception that women especially are considered scary or crazy if they're really vocal and they don't filter what they want to say. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And that happens to be me. So, I mean, the scene is set. That happens to be me. So, um, I mean, as as background on you, you were co-founder of Sleeping Giants. Um, and I, I heard it described once as um, a an effort to make bigotry and sexism less profitable, <laughs> which is... That's right. Right. I mean, it shouldn't be profitable at all. Um, Sleeping Giants famously got thousands of advertisers to pull their ads from Breitbart. But then in 2020, you and your co-founder, Claire Atkin, launched Check My Ads, nonprofit organization, um, ad tech watchdog. You tell advertisers where their ads are running. Um, this industry isn't known for transparency. Um, so you give them that. And you know, often the answer is, oh, your ads are running on garbagey websites or you know, the, the pipes are funneling your ads to God knows what. Um, straight up made for advertising, um, disinformation, bad things. Um, but your your background isn't in ad tech and you've become very good you know, at reading sellers.json files and ads.txt files and calling out the, the BS, which feels, I mean, I know you talk to a lot of people in the industry, but feels somewhat self-taught. So tell me a little bit about, about that, how one decides to embark on that journey to know how to read a sellers.json file and what exactly you're looking for when you do. Well, first of all, thank you for that introduction. That's, uh, um, I think that that really um, nails the journey that we've been on so far, uh, except for one detail. We, we did not start our nonprofit in 2020. We actually started a consultancy in 2020. It was a for-profit. And our intention was to, uh, I mean, for about six months prior to that, we had started our newsletter, Branded, where, uh, with the intention of documenting what we were learning. My partner, Claire Atkin, and I um, were both from the world of SaaS marketing, B2B SaaS marketing. So um, like, I used to do product positioning and pitching and uh, like product marketing for tech companies. 
um, and she did she did similar work um, as well. And so we did not know anything about ad tech when we first got together and started to um, to learn about this industry. And so we started blissfully to, unaware, <laughs> truly blissfully unaware, and and asking all the all the so called dumb questions. You know, we had we would. We reached out to people who were experts in the field and asked them to explain things to us like we were five. And we're, I'm so glad we did because we were able to, we were, we were learning things that weren't documented anywhere. And so we felt like this was an opportunity for us to do that so that, you know, like, like marketers, we generally know the lay of the land, but not many marketers know how ad operations actually works. Like how, like what happens when you click the buttons on the dashboard in your paid advertising uh, programs or what happens when you instruct your agency uh, or vendor to do X thing. Um, how does that actually play out? And, and what are the actual results and outcomes of that? So we started by documenting that and uh, branded ended up being sort of our, um, the, the thing that we built our, our consultancy on. We, we went in with the intention of wanting to help advertisers keep their ads away from hate and disinformation. But very quickly, we learned that our clients were not able to get their hands on the data that they required to be able to audit and review their own ads. So we couldn't do our job. And uh, no one could. <laughs> so um, we this played out with multiple clients, big clients. We're talking Fortune 500 companies with multi-million dollar budgets trying to get their hands on data that they were being refused. And so we realized that we are dealing with a much bigger problem uh, than uh, than the one that we than the one that we thought we were entering the market with. And so we realized the real problem here is this lack of transparency around our own data. And so we stepped back and realized that we're not going to be able to run this consultancy. So we shut it down and we started Check My Ads, the ad tech watchdog. And that's what we do, do today. So you brought up the, the approach of asking questions, like basic questions, like as if I'm five. And I really do love that because that that's still my approach when I'm interviewing people for articles. Like I'll just ask them to explain whatever it is to me, like six different times, six different ways. And it's really, really valuable because each time, you know, the they they explain it a little bit differently, but often like simpler each time. Right? I mean, because people yeah. often fall back on jargon. It's such a, a it's almost like it's almost a cloak that people put on or something that they stand behind. They don't even realize they're using it or leveraging it. And when you strip it down, uh, I hate the word leverage, by the way, just say use drives me insane. Yes. <laughs> but when you strip it down, um, I mean, this is a very complex industry, but it's made more complex by the way people talk about it. Yeah. That's exactly right. And we, I mean, like my, my background as a marketer has really helped because I mean, I used to be the one that wrote the websites for like the, the type of products that I now uh, 
criticize. <laughs> so in an alternate in an alternate timeline, I'm writing double verifies a new website for them. <laughs> um, right. But uh, we realized that that was a really big barrier for marketers. And it's it's a real problem that that people think that other people know what's going on and that makes them embarrassed to ask the dumb, like the so-called dumb questions because these are not dumb questions at all. We, uh, we, we kind of went in, into the, into this, this project, into this work with the assumption that we don't know what we're doing. And in fact, that was really my position for years when, when I, when we were running Sleeping Giants, we like that whole campaign was built on the knowledge we had at the time, which was that if your ads are running on this website, they are funding that website. And as we learned more about how the mechanics of this industry works, we learned that you don't even have to be running ads on the website for it to make money. Or like that website, once it's blocked, it can just spin up a new website that isn't blocked and continue to earn money through a seller account. So through this, this process of learning from, from the experts, we learned about, uh, you know, dark pool sales houses. And so we worked to make that better understood in the, uh, in the industry. And we moved from asking advertisers to block websites to asking ad exchanges to drop seller accounts from their inventory. What are the main red flags that pop up to you? And like, how easy are they to find? And that's not at all to diminish the the efforts that you put into this, which are great. I just, I ask that because there's also a lot of um, like fofo in this industry, the fear of finding out. Yeah. And so I think sometimes people aren't necessarily looking and it takes somebody to just look and point with their finger. <laughs> like, there it is. Yeah, so... Our goal with everything that we do, and particularly with each branded that we put out, is to advance our collective understanding of this ecosystem in a way, in a sort of tangible way. So, um, for example, first we wrote about dark pools around, I think it was two years ago now, and we sort of introduced the idea and defined it and... um, got that out there. And then over time, we've now put out pieces about um, specific dark pools. And then we sort of speculated that the way that this this, um, this scheme works would allow bad actors to come in and use use the ecosystem, uh, use the ad- advertising supply chain in ways that benefit uh like sanctioned governments <laughs> and right. we've, and over time we've been able to to prove that i mean we've gone from talking about brand safety as a general topic to proving our thesis that the these pipelines that are created by the ad tech industry actually represent a national security threat such as with our most recent research around um Publier, the the yes. ad network that I wanted to talk about them. Yeah. Go, on, go on. I got a lot to say. Um, yeah, the, this ad network that is is monetizing the Donald. So this this can get really scary really quickly. 
So you brought up Publier. I definitely want to talk about them. Um, it's this weird little ad network that you, as you said, is helping monetize the Donald, or you strongly suspect that it is. There's weird layers here. Um, and for anyone who isn't familiar, um, they were this very popular, um, subversive, um, unfortunate subreddit. And they were banned from Reddit for their role in inciting violence leading up to the January 6th riots. And now they have a self-hosted website. And there's just this very strong connection to real clear politics. And you've found Publier listed as a publisher by some ad tech companies rather than as an ad network. So so yeah, just um, let's show us behind the curtain um, what what's the latest on all of this weirdness? Because I think there were some developments since you posted your original thing. Yeah, yeah. This whole story is really weird. So in January, uh, a Media Matters analyst named Alex Kaplan tweeted that the Donald was running ads. And everybody was tweeting and DMing me that day. And so I looked into it and I saw that they were monetized exclusively by this company called Publier. Publier.com, if you visit the website, looks, you know, pretty anodyne, pretty normal. Um, but when, so I went in to check on the the guy who runs it, the CEO of the company. And it said that on, on his LinkedIn, it said that he had been working for Real Clear Politics for about like 14 years before starting Publier or co-founding Publier in 2021. And I thought that was odd because that company has been around for longer than two years. So, um, and I also thought it was odd that he worked for, for you know, for so long um, at Real Clear Politics and and just moved over. So I started to look into the uh, into into the seller accounts that they were running, and I started to see seller accounts. Well, first of all, I saw that the inventory that Publier works with is like primarily disinformation. It is like primarily garbage content. Um, it's not just the Donald, which sits at patriots.win. It was, uh, there was an entire .win ring of websites. And those websites were improperly labeled. So in <laughs> when he first onboarded them in December, he had onboarded them at the, I think right before the holidays, he onboarded them under the name Greg, and then he then he changed it to scored.co. Mm -hmm. And none of these are the, the thing that belongs in that entry. You're supposed to put a corporate name. Like it is this whole thing is designed for us to be able to check to see where our ads are going, to give us some modicum of transparency around you know where the where the money goes. So I took a closer look at who is running the Patriots.win website. And um, the answer is it's a company called Patriots LLC. And that company is a shell corporation in Delaware. And it's been, it's been around since 2001. And then I took a closer look at Publier itself to learn about uh, you know, where it might be registered and learned that it's not registered anywhere. And the company goes, the company has been operating as Integer Media LLC across the supply chain, either Integer Media or Publier LLC. And then I looked more closely and realized that Integer Media LLC also doesn't exist anymore. Last year, 
uh, he moved the company from, I think it was uh, Indiana to Delaware and turned it into a Delaware shell corporation called Earnstack Inc. But there's no press releases on it. There's no information about this, this change. And it's not reflected in the advertising, um, you know, in the marketplace. It's not reflected in any of the records. So essentially, we have this guy running a company with a website whose footer says Publier LLC, but that company doesn't exist. Um, and that, that non-existent company is trading with a national security threat, which is also a shell company. And uh, he's told nobody about the new name. So I think that should raise red flags at a minimum. And I, I, I think that what we have reported on so far is just the tip of the iceberg. How common is it from your experience that, you know, if you just take like the tip of your toe and put it underneath like a carpet and start to just look a little bit underneath that pretty much every time you do that, you're going to find something weird. Like, are there just rabbit holes everywhere? Or how common yes. is something like the Publier? Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's like, there's a hundred, like, there's so many stories that I could be working on that, and we are working on multiple stories at any given time. But this one is particularly interesting because it allows us to build on the research that we have done to date. It allows us to prove the, the points that we have been making over time. And it really starts to bring together, once we start to bring together these concepts of, of dark pools, of you know, ads.txt files, and, and we have gone from a place of like speculation to this, you know, this is happening. And for a long time, I've had this theory that it's possible that that ad tech and ad th these sort of dark pools like Publier are the perfect way for dark money donors to distribute money to a large number of disinformation outlets without having any sort of like paper trail to find them. And I... I can't say definitively that that's the case here, but we're seeing this trail between from Publier between so like Publier being sort of a middleman between the Donald and Real Clear Politics, which shares seller accounts with the Donald and alleged like this this doesn't seem to have this doesn't seem to bother the CEO or the executive team over at Real Clear Politics, um, and at the same time we know for a fact that Real Clear. Uh, Real Clear Foundation, which is their nonprofit arm, takes money from uh, from billionaire donors who do support the did support the January sixth insurrection, and do support election disinformation. So I can't make a definitive statement around this, but I can certainly speculate that these pipelines allow such a scheme to take place. I mean, I, I don't know either, but your theory smells right and it doesn't smell good. Um, <laughs> so we're, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to pop down a few more rabbit holes. So stick with us.
we're back and um, ready to jump back into the rabbit holes. So to take a step back, we were getting kind of specific with Publier. What about in general? Like when you uncover something, what is your next step? You find something problematic. What do you do with that information? Well, it really depends what the information is and whether um, sort of what options are available to us. Our goal as an organization is to constantly create change. And we can do that through writing a branded, which um, which we do for what we feel are bigger stories that help move the, the narrative forward, help move our move our work forward in a in a significant way. And then we do things behind the scenes. So we do reach out to ad tech executives behind the scenes. We talk to advertisers behind the scenes. Um, we work with partners in the accountability space. Uh, we we have a lot of friends everywhere. And so we are um, we do our best to work with people behind the scenes before getting to a point where we're calling them out. Um, we Part of the reason that we call people and organizations out is because they are not, they're not responding. Like with, you know, Publier as an example, the CEO has come out and said that, yes, we do work with the Donald and we will continue to work with them if someone chooses to monetize them. And it's just, it's just the wrong stake to put in the ground, in my opinion. But with the caveat that my opinion doesn't matter, <laughs> the the supply the supply policies matter, and these ad exchanges that he works with all have supply policies that prohibit the type of content he is attempting to to bring into the supply chain. So, so we we work with people. I mean, we we're ultimately a constructive organization. We're not we're not trying to tear things down. We are trying to find a way to move forward in a way that we think is uh, we, we think benefits the client and the client is of course ultimately the advertiser. So how receptive are companies when you do reach out? I mean I, I assume that if you know you have a post on your blog on branded, then you try to reach out and it was it was fruitless. Um, so probably for every time you post something, you've reached out and helped smoothen an issue behind the scenes like many times many multiples of that so yeah I mean every time you name people um there's probably I don't know x number of people you don't name because they responded positively by changing their behavior is that a Pollyanna point of view on my part or how receptive are companies yeah it's it really varies and I think uh, I mean it's I, there's, there's, I mean, I've seen certain patterns with companies, but you know, it really depends on what kind of day they're having. I think sometimes I don't, I don't really know what's going on within these companies when we reach out. Sometimes they're, they're not responsive to us. Um, Magnite, for example, used to at least respond to my emails and now they don't do that anymore. So with, with a company like Magnite, I'm less likely to to take the time to reach out to them privately. Um, but, you know, of course we, like we, there's other companies that are really responsive and acknowledge they've received their, our email, that they're opening up a review. 
Um, and we, we appreciate them and we do try to make an example, like a good example out of them. And when you see a company respond positively by changing their behavior, and then maybe you go back however many months later, do you find that they're still acting, you know, well, or do you ever notice slippage? I mean, no company has has reached the standard that we want them to reach. That's like that's a fact. They are still largely reactive and um, scared to engage in the conversations that they need to have in order to um, to get to a place where they're truly uh, brand safe and acting in, in the full interest of advertisers. So uh, that's also a symptom of the system. You know, they're their, you know, their peers are monetizing the garbage. So if they don't monetize the garbage, they're going to make, make less money. Um, so we recognize that, that that's the system that we're operating in, which really brings up questions about whether the system is worth saving. I mean, are they really making less money if they don't monetize the garbage? Because they could stop doing that and just save money and probably have no impact on their sales whatsoever. I think that's one factor. I think another factor is the political uh, nature of the conversation is a difficult one and it's uncomfortable. And it's uncomfortable to be the person to proactively bring up a website and say, hey, I don't think this is brand safe and risk being branded within your organization as the troublemaker or as someone um, (laughs) like who's going to I don't know, ultimately prevent someone else's bonus from from happening. Yeah. So like it's the incentives I are difficult. out of whack. Yeah, yeah. And and like that's that's why we work so hard to frame our work around outside of the realm of politics. Um Claire and I don't really talk about politics because that's not the conversation we're having here. And and a lot of people like to talk about our work in terms of, oh, they're they're just going after the right wing or the conservative outlets. But that's simply not true. We're 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 focusing on like we have specific words we use. We use xenophobia, misogyny, sexism, bigotry, hate. We are focusing on outcomes. What is the outcome of working with a website? that continuously attacks and bullies trans people while it contributes to the growing un, like unsafe conditions for trans people to exist and live their lives. And we think that that is one of the only ways to really look at this in a way that's objective and, and productive. We can talk all day about whether that is a right-wing or left-wing talking point or um, whether that's, you know, like infringing on people's right to free speech. But we don't accept that this is part of the political spectrum. We, um, we think that big, like bigotry just is, sits outside of that. I mean, bigotry is, I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say that it's not really brand safe, that most advertisers wouldn't want to be monetizing that kind of content. And yet I've heard you say this, and it's absolutely true. When people think of brand safety, they think of, oh, I don't want my ad for Pampers on 
Twitch or something because like that's gamer content. Like that's not really that big of an issue. The issue is helping support uh, COVID misinformation or, you know, just something really toxic. Yeah, you bring up a great point there, actually. The thing that confused me the most when I first learned the word brand safety and looked it up online was that advertisers seem to think of brand safety as a issue of adjacency. So I don't want my ad next to that bad Breitbart headline and completely skipped over the the reality of what we were saying um, at starting with Sleeping Giants, which was not that your ad is appearing next to the thing. That's not why it's bad. It's bad because your ad paid for the website and it pays people's salaries at that website to keep writing more of that garbage. So you are contributing directly to uh, to that environment and to this environment where these type of websites can thrive. And we need people to understand the difference between this adjacency issue and funding, the funneling of money to these organizations, because that is ultimately what keeps them alive. These guys are extremely smart. They know that they're being blocked en masse by advertisers and agencies and ad exchanges, and they have already found workarounds to continue collecting ad dollars. One uh, one key way that they do that is by using fronts. They work through third parties, again, like Pablir, or uh, they, they work under uh, a, last year, I, th- I think it was at this point last year that we published a story about how Steve Bannon's War Room, which uh, which is hosted and streamed by Real America's Voice, uh, operates under the front of Weather Nation, which is uh, sort of like a sister channel that that is physically located in the same building. So both of these channels are operating from the same building. They are sharing staff, and uh, and they're all owned by the same guy. So it doesn't matter whether you. Uh, whether you know, if you're like, oh, I, I, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna put my money on Brand Safe Weather Nation. There's no, there's no separation. You're paying for both operations. And then switching gears a little, I would love to get your take on the need for access to log level data. Um, I mean, I've heard you talk about the need for that. Advertisers deserve access to it, and the um, the ANA put out the first part of this programmatic transparency report in June. Although I've been referring to it in my own head as the lack of programmatic transparency report because that is what it is. But one of their main recommendations is that advertisers should get log level data from every ad tech vendor in their supply chains that they can see a historical record of everything about an impression, like exactly when it was served, where it was served, how much it cost, whether it was viewable, the type of ad, like everything. And it's hard to argue with that. That is a really good idea. But I also saw this really interesting post uh, very recently um, by Augustine Fu, who I know you know, on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. And the title of the post was Log Level Data, Should You Ask For It or Trust It? And his point is that, yes, you should ask for it, but no, you shouldn't trust it. And it's not magic. It's like a useful signal if a company is unwilling to hand over log level data because, you know, that that's a sign they might be hiding something. But you also, you know, can't 
necessarily trust what's shared with you because log level data can be falsified. And even if it's not falsified, it's only really useful if you have other data to compare it to, um, to corroborate it, but also to contextualize it. Because just because an ad was served somewhere that pretty much everyone would agree is questionable, doesn't mean that somehow maybe it wasn't there on purpose. So it, just, it feels like transparency is a lot more complicated for advertisers than just getting their hands on log level data. So I, that's not a great, that, that's just me rambling, but I'd love your reaction to that. And then also like beyond that, what advertisers should be doing if they want to be good actors beyond just, you know, asking for log level data. Yeah, that's a great, um, that's a great summary of the, the, like, I guess the transparency conversation. My take on that is let's get our, let's get, let's get through step one first. <laughs> let's just get the data first. Fair. And then we can talk about contextualizing it. These are all, these are all fair points, but uh, the average, the average advertiser cannot get their hands on it. And, and the, the vendors go out of their way to make sure they don't. I mean, I like, I've observed some really shocking behaviors from vendors, including like going over the head of someone that wanted access to their log level data and trying to get them in trouble with the boss. Like what, what is this person Nasty. out of line for? Yeah. And, um, and that kind of thing is, I mean, these are the kinds of dirty tricks they're playing. I and mean, there's a lot of the reason that advertisers can't get access to this data is because they are literally playing politics and they're literally playing with their jobs. So um, I just, what would make me happy at this, you know, at this time is if advertisers pushed back and just got to the point where they had their data. Um and then let's talk. I think that there's there's a lot more to be seen after we get that. Because people, advertisers come to us all the time and they say, you know, what should we, what should we be doing? Like they're lost and who can blame them? What we think that we need as marketers and advertisers is to relearn the concept of brand stewardship just the act of the belief that you are a steward of your brand and that you don't just magically suddenly give up control of your ad as soon as you have completed the arduous task of building a, you know, developing a campaign, building it out, you know, all the other, all the other things that you do to build a memorable brand. You don't just stop caring about what happens after you hand it over to the vendors to to place your ads on the internet that is the most important thing of all and yeah it is a difficult it is a difficult conversation because for the past 10 years that act has been essentially hijacked taken away from marketers and so we don't even know how to have these conversations anymore we don't even know how to come to the table and say yeah, I think our ads should be here and for XYZ reasons, and they shouldn't be here for XYZ reasons. And so marketers have become terrified of putting a stake in the ground. And that's actually, I hate to break it to you, but that's the job of, of marketing. I mean, marketing is, is a cultural act. We, 
the point of marketing is to resonate with your audience and you need to find a way to do that. And we've lost that art. We've lost that discipline. And I think a really key part of this and a really key part of um, our work here is to give marketers permission to take back that control. So you're telling me the point of marketing and advertising is not blindly shooting ads into the ether and then just going for lunch. Surprising, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you... You spoke at Programmatic I.O. in Las Vegas in May, our event. Um, You were talking about brand safety on CTV with Antonio Torres. He's the co-founder and CTO of DeepSea, which I know you know. I'm just saying it for our listeners. Um, And one of the issues you touched on is that advertisers, during that presentation, is that advertisers only have very limited visibility into the quality of their ad buys. And one reason for that is because streaming platforms don't give buyers enough information about their bids. So they are kind of just flying blind. And there also aren't standards for doing that. It's kind of messy. So like every time an ad tech CEO gushes about CTV advertising on an earnings call, if you happen to be listening in or in an interview that you read or listen to, maybe even an interview with Ad Exchanger talking about the growth opportunity and ad spend on the rise and CTV will save us all. They have dollar signs in their eyes. What's the first thing that you think of when you hear people gushing about CTV advertising? (laughs) Um, I mean, the first thing I think about is is watching a Volvo ad on Steve Bannon's war room during commercial break. Uh, what I learned at Ad Exchanger uh, at that conference, I I went and talked to uh, a bunch of these streaming TV companies and I asked them, why am I seeing ads for really good brands on war room, brands that have said they don't want to be here? And they said, well, if you are watching like... Um, like Roku, Roku TV Live, Samsung TV Live, um, all, all these uh, uh, channels that are like owned by the manufacturer, you as an advertiser don't have control over where your ad runs on those channels. So it could, it could if there's like 100 channels on Samsung, you don't have control your ad is going to run by default on Real America's Voice under because that is part of their news and politics segment. And so your ad is equally likely to run on Steve Bannon's War Room as it is on like an NBC channel. And that's, that's like stunning to me. Um, it's stunning. It's stunning that they don't have any, I think after the fact you can maybe like ask to block that specific channel, but it is running by default as if it's just another normal uh, website or channel. And to, to me, it, like, as someone who has been working on Bannon since 2016 and achieved this, this milestone of the entire industry being like, Steve Bannon is universally brand unsafe. We all agree on this. Like, it is the one example that everyone can, um, can coalesce around. And then this guy goes to a new TV show and I have to start all over again. <laughs> like the, it's like we we're back to square one. Like what is going on here? And it's it's such a simple, easy thing to do. Just to like consider not having that channel in your offering at all. 
Like that's, I think, a very valid thing. You don't have to host Steve Bannon on your uh, your, your, your Samsung TV Live. I mean, this is not a hard decision to make. He was a key part of tr- an attempt to overthrow our government. Like what conversations are happening on the ground internally at these companies, I don't know. But ultimately that... Uh, when they talk about thing about the the growth of CTV, I think about what a what a wild, wild, lawless place it is, and how it's it's even more it's even more lawless than the 2016 web that you know that I first entered into uh, when I started working on Sleeping Giants. And when you talk to advertisers, because you do, and you say what you've just said, which I'm sure you've said many times, um, the lawlessness here and the fact that there is no transparency and that they deserve it. What do they say? Because it seems like it would be the parties with their wallets that can push for change, but it doesn't seem like anyone's very vocal about this issue. Yeah, it's a tough one. I think advertisers are really, they care a lot. That's what we've noticed. Universally, advertisers really care and they feel like their hands are tied. They they don't know what to do. I think there's a lot of fatigue around brand safety. It is the thing that keeps them up at night, but it's like this constant uphill battle. And I don't I don't blame advertisers for being tired of it. It's like everywhere you go, the every platform that they might want to advertise on is toxic. Like like Facebook, Twitter, the open web, CTV, mobile. I mean, the whole thing is a mess. And and that's why there isn't really like a short term. There's not like an easy way to fix this problem. The way that we fix the problem, I think, is to is is to, to make a real um, cultural shift where advertisers truly feel ownership of of their brands. And if we can build that culture, and I believe we can, of course, we can get to a place where advertisers are not investing their ad dollars in a deteriorating media environment. You know, we have to tend our garden in order for our garden to grow, right? And we don't have that right now. We have spaces like Twitter that are getting increasingly worse. And the only way to, f- to fight back and to create a flourishing environment for both consumers and for advertisers is for the advertisers to speak up and to insist that they have brand safe places to advertise. And I think we do have that power. That power has been wrested from us, but I do believe that is that is temporary and that together as as the 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 holders of the wallet, <laughs> the holders of the purse, the purse strings, um, we can turn this around. I do like that. It really sh- it's it's not about just negativity. It, there is an end goal, a better internet. Um, we are almost out of time though. So can we do a little lightning round, like quick five to 10 second answers? Just a- Oh God, yes. Okay. <laughs> How big of a problem um, are made for advertising websites? Uh, one of the biggest problems. What do you think of content recommendation platforms like Taboola and Outbrain? Uh, I know we'll be successful when they go out of business. 
Okay. Um, what do you think of using domain inclusion lists versus exclusion lists, which is what the ANA is re- recommending now? The ANA is wrong. Why? Oh, wait. Did, sorry. Which one is the ANA recommending? <laughs> sorry. Oh, there. They are mind. recommending inclusion lists rather than exclusion lists. Oh, yeah. They're, they're right. Oh, they're right. Okay. <laughs> um, so Check My Ads has a newsletter. You post on LinkedIn. Um, you are very active on Twitter or X or whatever the hell it's called now. Um, is Twitter in a chaotic doom loop or can Linda Yaccarino save it basically from itself? Uh, Twitter is over. <laughs> is X over also? X is over. It's 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 uh just because it doesn't crash immediately doesn't mean it's it's not going to crash. If there's anything that I've learned, there are things happening behind the scenes that uh will will uh, reach a tipping point later rather than sooner. Are brand safety vendors hindering the news industry? Absolutely. Do you think online advertising is a force for good or ill? Force for good. We we need we've always advertising is part of our ecosystem and it'll always be there. And so our goal is to um, to allow advertisers to to do their thing. So lightning round is over. I want to ask you one last question. What is your like proudest moment with Check My Ad so far? Like a change that you helped make happen or something you uncovered that led to change that just made you feel really, really good. And, you know, it's sort of like like a dear diary moment. Oh, wow. Um, I think, I think defunding, losing... Steve Bannon, dozens of advertisers in the course of a few weeks last summer was the feather in my cap. I think he lost a lot of money. A lot of money. (laughs) So I lied. I have one last question, actually. This is for real, my last question. But um, it just occurs to me, like, will there always be a need for check my ads? Or do you think that we'll eventually reach a point where, and I do mean this in the best way possible, like your services are no longer needed. Kind of like with a dating app, right? Like true success is when someone finds love and they delete the app. So true success for Check My Ads would be like not having to exist and calling, not having to call out companies. You nailed it. That is actually our success metric. We want to go out of business. Put us out of business. (laughs) (laughs) I want to go, I want to go back to my old job. I loved my old job. I love this job too, but um, I, I really hope we don't have to be around forever. Guys, do better. Nandini wants to go back to her old job. Please put her out of business. 